Hello and welcome back, lovely people who listen to the big interview. Coming up, the fascinating Eddie Howe. First of all, I want to tell you that my book about Spain's three tournament wins comes out this week in paperback. The access I had to that team at Euro 2008, the South African World Cup and Euro 2012 was exceptional. Thank you to them. And this book, Spain, the inside story of La Roja's historic treble, is something I'm proud to have produced. If you like these podcasts, I think you'll like the book. And the hard fact is that once it's out in paperback, it's cheaper to buy. So get on it. Okay, Eddie Howe, the young manager with a big reputation, a genuinely impressive man. We talk about the influence that the basketball coach and former teacher, John Wooden, has had on his life, not just in being a successful football manager or coach, but by helping him be a better person. Yes, of course, karaoke comes up, but Eddie raises it, smashing up neighbours' houses, the debt he owes to his mother and his grandfather. Team building, team bonding, sheep herding. Yes, sheep herding comes up. So does the fact that he thinks his injury that ended his career was self-induced. And we touch on the idea that where is there time as a successful coach in the Premier League to assimilate, to stop, to rest, to guard against burnout and to guard against doing yourself damage? His Bournemouth team aren't just a good story. They're cleverly put together. His players are individually coached and in an expenditure of time that I don't know any other big manager, big coach who does that, who can afford to give so much of himself. I find that fascinating about him. I think it's a key to his success. But for how long can you sustain that level of input to a club? An ambitious man, somebody who learned from Real Madrid and their visit to Bournemouth. A likeable man, somebody who smiles and laughs quickly, who's intelligent, hardworking and demanding. Boy, it was a right big pleasure to spend time with him at his club and to learn from him. With any luck, you'll come out of the other end of this feeling something similar to what I did. Enjoy. While I say this every time, it's true now, it's an enormous privilege to be sitting with Eddie Howe. It's that you're the first in our series of interviews of people that I admire who have inspired me but I haven't met. So there's no nerves, but there is a hint of, um, I wonder where this will take us. Thanks, first of all, for sitting down and taking time to chat about your work and your achievements and your career, because I suspect that it isn't always fun to stop and talk about them and... In sport, it's probably one of the penalties that you have to keep talking about the same things over and over and over again. I actually don't mind it. I think reflective moments are so few and far between in my line of work that probably the only chance I do get to reflect back is in interviews and is when discussing the past with, with various people. So sometimes it's quite therapeutic to do it. We've already off mic, we've been talking about reading and I try and, I don't know, we call it distant too far in Spanish, uh, just unplug myself from the stress and the travel of journalism by reading a lot. And I was reading recently Billy Crystal's autobiography. And in his neighbourhood, he bumped into Lou Alcindor, who became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And via reading that book, I began to read, before I was researching you, I began to read about John Wooden and watch his interviews and his teaching. And I went, um, if I'd seen this man, if I'd listened to this man 30 years ago, I might have made something of my life. And therefore, the fact that Somebody in Britain, because I live in Spain and this is the football culture, is very drawn from basketball. They understand ideas, sporting ideas from basketball, pressing, the pivot, the pivote, and so on and so forth. But I know that most of them listen to the coaches, read the coaches. 
Am I right in thinking that, that John Wooden has been interesting and, and important to you beyond even football, simply in what he teaches, what he argues, what his differentiation between winning and success has been? Absolutely right. I mean, I sort of stumbled across John Wooden. I was given a book quite early into my management career from a, a friend who thought the book might help me in some way and little did he know that the book sort of transformed my ideas on coaching, management and indeed life. I think that's where John Wooden's work transcends because it covers sport but it covers definitely life principles you can take. So you can see my office here now is covered with quotes from him. So yeah, he inspired me. Following on from the first book I got, I've now got five or six and sometimes when I need to find an inspirational quote or a word or, or just to get my focus back, I'll turn to him. I grew up thinking that in the British culture, we, I, I don't know if it's pride or that we're a warrior culture. Certainly, I think in football, people are slow to look elsewhere and to try to cross-fertilise, as if I should be able to do this on my own or something like that. You obviously don't feel like that, but do you recognise that idea that maybe we're not the best at saying, well, they do it like this, so I'm going to try and see if that works for me too? Yeah, I think, I think you can take many things from, from other sports, other people, businesses. I'm a believer in trying to make myself a better person, first and foremost, and then a better coach. And I think to be narrow-minded and think football is the only sport that has the solutions, I think you're wrong. Ultimately, it's just about what, what I feel. I, I always talk about developing my players to the best that I can, in which case I have to develop myself as well. So that's what I try and do. As a coach, as a, because he was a teacher, John Wooden, yeah. beyond simply being a basketball coach. And it took him a long, long time, like 16 seasons, to become what you would define as a, as a success. He, he talked a great deal about patience and faith. And he also talked about the route to peace of mind was simply, it wasn't winning, but by doing the best you can all the time consistently, which is true, but it's also a big test. I don't think we're actually designed to excel in ourselves every day. Otherwise, we'd all have full heads of hair and 32-inch waists. And what he's preaching is contrary to the human, or the modern human condition anyway. Yeah, to a degree. I mean, I think I found comfort in that definition of success that he talks about by me feeling like I do give my best. So on the back of a defeat or a low moment in management, which is only around the corner in this job, I use that quote to lift me again. Knowing that you give your best every day for your players, for your club, is a bare minimum for me and that's what I try and deliver and then the winning or losing is the vague part some days you win some days you don't but it's knowing that bare minimum level that you've hit that's really important for me I had it in my football career in my playing career where I felt I gave absolutely everything I couldn't have given more so I have no regrets looking back over my career and I think it's very important in management that I, I follow the same line Off mic again we talked a little bit about my perception that this is an incredibly demanding lifestyle that you've chosen. And I'm not talking about the fear of dismissal one day because the team isn't going well, but simply, I think people, we genuinely try in the big interview to open the world of football where people permit us and explain things. They'll open the clock and see the workings. It's intense. It doesn't allow you a great deal of time to think, to assimilate. You, you started by saying you don't get a lot of time to read or... How do you cope with that? And is it a difficult lifestyle? Yeah, I think the best way for me to sum it would be, I sort of knew what I was going into with management. I got offered the Bournemouth job New Year's Eve. I can't remember the year now, but New Year's Eve anyway. Uh, and I was with my wife at a New Year's Eve party and said, I've been offered the Bournemouth job. And she goes, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I think you've got to know that as soon as I take this job, our lives are going to change. Mm. I just knew that 
my personality as it is would throw myself right into the job and I couldn't have spoken a truer word. My life is on hold, that's probably the best way to put it. I'm now a different person, totally committed to a job that I can't switch off from. I'm not talking about my out of work life will only start again you know, when I stop being a manager because it's so consuming. But that, by definition of what you said, that isn't simply the demands of being manager of a Premier League club. That's, you've identified that's a personal thing as well. Well, it's, yeah, it's my, I say my problem. I think my problem is also my biggest asset. <laughs> so my work ethic, how I want to approach the job means that I have to fully commit to it. So uh, I, my wife will often say, oh, you, you know, why don't you have a day off today? Why, why are you going in today? And I'll say, or why are you working this late? And I'll say, I have to do it. And no one's telling me I have to do it, yeah. but I'm driving myself knowing that I want to succeed. You know, I want to win. Um, I want to achieve. So you have to make those sacrifices. When I was younger, a series of weird circumstances ended with me writing speeches for a dyslexic, Jackie Stewart, which was a test. And it was testing to be around him. And I'm very loyal to him. So I'm going to dispute that Gary Player invented the phrase about the harder I work, the luckier I get, because it was definitely Jackie. But listening to you and researching you and watching your work, watching you on TV and radio, I don't feel that this um, obsessive need to work hard to succeed is, the core is, the harder I work, the luckier I get, because it seems to me that the detail that you're talking about, the time that you'll invest, is far more specific than that. And for example, in my life, I've been very lucky to speak to and meet leading coaches and ask them similar questions. And I've never met one yet who's as clear about the need to individually brief and analyse with players, which is an enormous time drain for you. But that's essential for your success to be so detailed with individuals. And it's a net gain in the time that you spend on that. I, I would believe so. Yeah. I mean, my, I can only go by my sort of results not in talking about the team results, but with the players that I've worked with, I'd like to think that anyone that leaves me will turn around and say, well, he tried to improve me. Now, sometimes players are more receptive than others, but I will devote my time for them to make them the best they can be. No, no one's told me to do that. It's just my instinct has taken me that way. If When I started the Bournemouth job, initially we had no money, nothing. So it was really about getting the best out of what I had at that time. So we had a transfer embargo for a year. I think it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me. So really, more my focus went on this group of players, make them the best you can. That was very healthy from a coaching perspective. So time on the training ground, individually analysing their games, something I'd never really had as a player. And I really, I craved it as a player. I, I really wanted that one-to-one -one work with a coach. And I, no disrespect to my coaches who were excellent, but it wasn't, it wasn't really the done thing then. What did they give you? What, what is the comparison? What did you get as an individual player? For your managers, if you weren't getting the one-to-one -one analysis, encouragement, maybe sounding board, what were you getting? Well, I was getting um, an opportunity. I was getting definitely a, a team coaching environment. So the team was catered for, but the individual at my time of playing, I don't think was. So it was very team-oriented work, very few video clips, analysing individuals, which I felt was where we were where I personally was missing out. I know there was lots of things I needed to improve and so I sort of tried to self-teach myself at the time. So I'd go away in the summer and work on things I needed to work on on my own, try and come back a better player and usually I did. And then I just took that philosophy into management. So, right, with my team of coaches, let's focus on every player, let's work out their strengths and weaknesses and let's make them better. What would you do as a player? Go in the local park when you were supposed to be on holiday, 
supposed to be, yeah. you know, unplugging. What would you literally do? Basically, there? I was always told by the then coaches, you know, sometimes I'd go to the ground out, out here on the park. What are you doing? The season's just ended <laughs> and you're out, you know, hitting the ball against the wall. But I was like in my early 20s. And again, I wanted to achieve. I wanted to play at the highest level. So sometimes it'd be my, me and my brother. I had three brothers, me, me and my two brothers who, who were into football, would uh, go off to a park by ourselves till late in the day. No different, I'm sure, to every other or many other ex-professional footballers. How many? Well, I'm sure they're... This, I'm not being disparaging, but I'd say no. Mm. <laughs> Automatically, it's not a coincidence. But in this series of interviews, we keep meeting people like you. You won't have a time to listen to them. But Gordon Strachan, for example, now said to his wife, Leslie, right, I'm going to take the car out of the garage, close the garage door, I'm going in with a ball, tie me, knock on the door after half an hour, I want to see how many touches I can get, ball off the wall, the front wall, the left wall, there, to see, and he's using that to say, well, kids that are playing are getting 12 touches a game. And in half an hour in my garage, he got 1,000 touches, and he came out sweating, and Leslie said, stop it now. And, and Damien Duff, who just retired, went and hired um, an astroturf, pitch for himself just to go and kick a ball about because he was missing the ball itself mm. so much. You can recognise these yeah. people, can't you? Yeah, no, I can recognise that need to, there's something about football that needs to touch the ball. And if I wasn't coaching every day and having that luxury afforded to me already, I'd definitely be doing it on my own back again. You need to be out, is it the teamwork, the, the grass? The, well, I, th I think the ball itself. I think now I've got the coaching bug, which I didn't know I was going to get until literally probably a year before I got the opportunity to be a manager. I, I didn't really have a life plan for me in coaching. It was by opportunity rather than by design. I can see myself doing nothing other than coaching and it's just the love of trying to make players better, trying to correct things that you think need to be corrected and trying to find the extra thing that can make a player even better. That's a bug now that I think is in me. So when you're trying to improve yourself as a footballer and you're out in the park or here with your two brothers, what can you work on in that situation that makes you a better professional footballer by the time July and August comes around that people will want to understand that? Well, I think for me, there was a, a big focus on my left foot. I was very right-footed as an 18, 19-year-old and I didn't like it. I wanted to be as good on my left. So basically, by the time I was 24, I felt I was two-footed. That took me, I think, a couple of years, really, to really refine my left foot. And in the end, in the first team games, I was... When there was a free kick, I was hitting them with my left foot, hitting them with my right foot. And it wasn't a case of me showing off. It was a case of my brain doing it automatically, which I trained it to do. So little things like that, really, which if you can improve one foot to be as good as the other, you're, you're definitely going to improve your chances of being a good player. Do you have to slot them a five or two to come along? Or, or were they as... Well, one was a professional footballer in the end as well. So Mighty dandies you played yeah, for as that's well. That's right. So no, I had no problem with him. The other one, yeah. Uh, my older brother, Dan, needed a little bit more <laughs> financial gain to be out there. Tenor? <laughs> Yeah, but usually um, a, a little present at Christmas. Cut the candle like Yeah, it's fine. So when you decide to, to individually take video packages to your players here and sit down with them, is everybody receptive to that? You wanted it, you didn't get it. Some players also like a hands-off approach, don't they? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It's I think it's the way you, you put it across is key. Um, I think players are sometimes, when I'm new to them and vice versa, there's that little bit, oh, what's this all about? I'm not sure on this, but when they realise I'm not coming from a confrontational view, I'm coming from a, an educational view, I think they quickly realise I'm doing it for the right reasons. So I'd say nine times out of ten it's well received. I think you do get the odd player that thinks to himself, leave me alone. My game, I'm better when I'm thinking less, I'm better when I'm more autopilot rather than 
trying to focus on the points you've given me. And I think I'll be aware quite quickly that, okay, I'll just treat him slightly differently because not everyone's the same. You're a fan of Pep Confidential, which Marty Perinal, the Catalan Olympic athlete, wrote with full access to over a year of work at Bayern Munich when Guardiola went there. And Ribéry springs to mind from your description because Pep, as you know from the book, immediately put Ribéry in the false nine position where he'd played Messi and he told him, I'd like to do this and that and time your movement. And, and Ribéry bridled and said, don't understand, can't do it. And had to be put back on where Pep defined was a place of less space because there was a chalk line to, to his right. But Ribéry was a street footballer and, and didn't have the, even with Pep teaching, didn't have the mechanism to cope with that amount of detail. Reading that surprise you? No, I wouldn't say it surprised me because I, I can relate to that myself with the various players that I've worked at, obviously at a different level. We all have ideas on, oh, I could see him playing in here. He can definitely do that. And then you explain your ideas and you get someone to try it. And if they don't totally buy into it or they don't want to buy into it, it's incredibly difficult to then to make that happen. As much as your idea and your football knowledge will tell you something, it's got to be in tandem with the player. The player's got to want it as much as you. So I've had instances the same where something hasn't quite worked and we've had to revert back to the previous plan. How much do you think about your, your language when you communicate? Yeah, I'm very aware with what I say. I think you, you have to be, because a wrong word, a poorly executed sentence can do a lot of damage. I'm sure, I'm not saying I'm superhuman, I'm sure I've, I've made mistakes um, with how you can, can you communicate with players. But it's, I think, again, it's like, like everything, as long as you learn from that process and recognise that, oh, perhaps I phrased that wrong, then you try and put it right the next time. Are these words, because I often find they are in my head, so I'm not projecting, I'm just curious. When you're preparing for sessions, maybe the player where you might be telling him something you already know he's not going to like very much, or he's a player who's, who needs to listen to something two or three times, or I read a brilliant quote from you which said there's no point in putting him on the best session in the world unless you've got the message across. Do you, do you stomp around the house practising the words a little bit and talking to yourself, and, or are all these phrases, you know, your, your neighbours and your brain all the time? Yeah, and no, I think they're, they're in there. I think when I first became a manager, I... Um I'm trying to think back. Definitely there were, there were team talks or meetings where I'd be like, hmm, I've got to get this right, and I'd try and write something down. And I think, well, I'll follow that. I'll say that. Well, that. That's the message I want to get across. And then when you're there, you're thinking about what you've written, and it doesn't work. So I've just tended the first few months quickly to get in a rhythm of just speaking naturally. Speak naturally to players in team meetings. Speak, speak what comes from the heart. It is much better than anything pre-planned. Yeah, OK, understood. And also... There's a degree at which I presume that team communication compared to the individual work that you do spares people's blushes because if footballers are, you know, high-earning athletes, predominantly they're young, reasonably good-looking, wealthy. Some of them will never have to work again. And if you say something about them in front of the group, you can wound them forever, lose them forever. Yeah, I think, again, it's a totally different culture from when I was playing to where I am now. And I think it's important when you're in this position that you recognise that you can't do what coaches did to you back then and think, well, because it happened to me, it was fine. I mean, when I was playing, there was that open house. Managers could say whatever they wanted to you. You had to sit and take it in front of your teammates. It was just part of what happened. And you just, you went into a Saturday hoping that wouldn't be you that was going to get it today. But now I, I never, well, I wouldn't say never, but I very rarely would criticise or overly criticise anyone within the team when they're together because I think the best way is to do it as an individual one-to-one -one and explain because I don't think anyone wants to go out and not perform, wants to go and make a mistake. And I think, it's, again, it's a case of just trying to educate the players, right, I didn't like this, I don't want you to do this again. 
Now, if they keep doing it on the back of that intentionally, then obviously there's going to be a problem. But as long as a player is professional with me and gives me everything in terms of their, their conduct and their attitude to the training, you know, we have very little problems. Because the beginning of you is structured this way, please feel free to tell me I'm talking nonsense and put me down. Mm. I don't expect agreement, Benny. Have we come from a sort of army public school culture in, in 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, British football to more and more a sports university football culture where, you know, that dragooning of a group and screaming and bawling and do it for the lads and once more over the top is a really strong theme of the great British club sides that won and won and won. And I think the man that embodies that change is that Alex Ferguson and, and he was capable of the extremes you've talked about, but changed long, long before people understood this step. He changed with the times, changed his communication skills, had the right approach to the group and the individuals and, and was a, a man who bridged those gaps. Am I talking rubbish or do you recognise the change in what the sport is designed like now compared to what it was? I would, I would say so, yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd say there are moments when you do need to draw a line and you do need, certain things do need to be said. So it's not that you're constantly aware of not having conflict. I think conflict is a really good thing at times within the dressing room. You know, at half time and at the end of matches, sometimes you do want some conflict. You want some reaction. You want something said. So it's not that you want a total dead dressing room or, or anything like that. But I do think the days where it was literally a shouting match, I think they're over for the better of football, for the better of coaches, for the better of players. Because I think people are thinking about things more. How can we get the best out of the team and individuals rather than it's my way and, and you'll do what you're told? In group psychology, since we've touched on it, what was very interesting to me is that in the build-up to the um, Champions League final that Klopp took Dortmund to, he opened up his manual on team bonding. Now, maybe I read it wrongly, but I think I read a little word about it. I've done everything. I did sheep herding it. Burnley. I, d I don't quite know what that was about, but I wanted to know because Klopp said he took his group of players. He said, We'll go off to a, a Swedish island and we'll be together and we'll catch fish and we'll cook it. He said, It was hell. He said, It was mosquitoes. We all got bitten. The lads were throwing up when they were trying to eat the oh, fish they cooked. And he said, It still gave us something that unified us. Tell me about team bonding. Give me a laugh about sheep herding or even explain it. Oh dear, yeah. So um, I'm a big one for team bonding. I mean, from the minute I got the, the manager's job at Bournemouth, I was seeking things here, there and everywhere. So we did the, I think we've done everything, you know, we've done the, the go-karting, the paintballing, you name it, the traditional ones we've done. Then at Burnley, I thought, right, let's take this on to another level. So we actually got a letter from this company, Sheep Herding, great team event. So we looked on the internet and we're like, well, do you know what, we give this a go. 11 men and the dog kind yeah. of thing. Basically, and the lads, <laughs> oh dear, the lads turned up and they're looking at me and I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, this will be good, this, just give it a chance. And the people in the company were brilliant. Yeah. And I've got to say, uh, about 25 players, 20 of the players really enjoyed it and got yeah. something out of it. But there was about five that weren't having it, couldn't get into it. And me being me, ended up having a shouting match with a couple of them because I couldn't understand why they didn't throw themselves into it. We're here, let's give it our best. I was disappointed that they couldn't get their heads around it. That's the beauty of teams. Everyone's different. So it was a good learning experience for me and probably something I wouldn't do again, but you only learn from, from having a go. That's right. And I think that I draw a correlation between um, success and, and degrees of risk, where so long as your thought process is reasonably good, even if you accept, like, for example, who was the manager at Hull who had the team out sitting at halftime yeah. in it? Phil Brown. Phil Brown. Now, none of us have any idea whether some of the players were going, 
whoa, this has really woken me up. I, I, he just got stick for it. But unless you take calculated, thoughtful risks in life, then creativity isn't going to flow and you're not going to success. You're not going to have success. So it's, oh, it's Phil Brown. Sorry, Phil. Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I genuinely mean that. I think that you, you take a couple of risks and uh, sometimes you'll, you'll say, well, look what we've won here. Yeah, I mean, I, I've certainly made a lot of mistakes as a manager in, in my time. Um, but I always look back on those, those experiences as brilliant things. And I think that's the important part of what, what I've tried to do is reflect on myself. Although I say I don't reflect back and look at um, my time in management very often, I do look back sort of daily at what we've done. Was today good enough? from us as coaches, as a manager, was today what I wanted? Did I get out of what I wanted today? Would I do it again? Would mm -hmm. I do it differently? So that constant self-reflection happens every day. And little things like the sheep herding, I think that was really important for me. Little things like leaving your phone on in the middle of an interview, <laughs> but boy, do I feel stupid. John Wooden, wherever you are, that wasn't a masterpiece today. <laughs> I, I have to ask, I see he's done peace of mind because I, I, I watch a lot of people in football whether they be administrators or players or managers, either burn themselves out or lose their way a little bit. And, and how do you find an, an island of peace in, in your brain if you're really at the top? And so if you set up this idea that, you know, the peace of mind, as John Wooden said, can be found in, in doing your absolute best every day. Well, let's say you have a day where you don't do your best for whatever reason comes around. How easy is it for you not to castigate yourself or uh, to get that thorn out of your side quickly because you probably need to? And I'd imagine... It isn't easy to get that out of your system. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I'd cascade myself negatively in that way because I don't think there's a time when I've consciously made the decision not to give my best or be lazy or, you know, you react certainly um, different in, in other days. Some days you might wake up absolutely exhausted, mentally exhausted from a game and you think, I need a couple of hours here for myself. I need, I need to go for a walk with the dog or do something then I can concentrate on my work after. I think that's more of the process rather than thinking I've just been lazy, I haven't done my best there. I, mean, I, I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could go through a day where I think I consciously think uh, it's not me today. No. There's physical restraints, especially mentally in this job, because the, the, the tiredness is mental exhaustion rather yeah. than physical. So there are days when you just can't think straight, can't think clearly, and you think, oh, I say it to Jason Tindall a lot. I look over and go, my brain's not functioning as well as it should today, I need five minutes. Is that part of not just Jason's role, but somebody in his position, that you're the external hard drive for the manager? Yeah, he's definitely someone that bears the brunt, a little bit of my frustrations at times. So his, his role is a key one. He needs to be a little bit of everything to me. He needs to be a support, but he also needs to disagree with me at times when he strongly disagrees. I think that's really important. We do have conflict. It's really not enjoyable to be disagreed with. It isn't. No, and we do, we, we argue, I've said this in previous interviews, we do argue like cat and dog sometimes, we're, we're right at each other, but I think that's really healthy. I wouldn't say it at the time, I wouldn't go, brilliant, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> Thank <laughs> that you very much for that. That was a little bit, that, that, yeah. you, you David Brented me there a little bit. Uh, but I think people in, in the surrounding offices know what happens. They can know, hear you. They can hear us and they know, ooh, you know, stay away from there for a while. So where does the goodness come from that? With the fact that I have to maybe go away and rethink and I'm getting another angle, another perspective and it sends me away to go, right, okay, am I right? Usually I say, yes, I am. <laughs> and then come back and give him some more. But no, I find our, health, our relationship very healthy for me and I wouldn't be without him. I think he's absolutely brilliant and he's been you know, a massive part of the team.
Look, warn me if I, if I go into the wrong area here, but you mentioned previous interviews. In previous interviews, you've ascribed an enormous amount of your work ethic and your will to succeed to your mother's example as you were growing up. And I'm a Celt, so forgive me, I, I get mystical. And we stepped out of the car here in front of the ground. The first brick in the ground that we saw um, said, Anne Howe, which I thought was very moving. And it reminded me of, I've now been in Spain for half of my working life. And one of the myriad of differences that I find in the World Cup winning, Champions League winning footballers is that they will readily ascribe credit to a grandparent or a parent. They will talk with emotion and honesty about the role a brother or a sister or an aunt and the importance of the family to them. First of all, do you recognise that that's not something... I, I always felt when I was growing up that if you talked about that, your family in public, you'd, you'd, people would take the piss out of you. They'd find you embarrassing. We're not like that here in this, in this culture, are we? I think if I was still playing and my mum was alive and my granddad was alive, I probably would feel that, well, can I say this? You know, is it, is it right to say this? But now I'm in management, my attitude, and, and they're no longer with us, which is really sad. From my perspective, is totally changed. I will speak openly and honestly about my relationship with them to sort of honour them and to thank them. For, for everything they did for me. Maybe that will become more natural to footballers as times change here and we're less judgmental and we're less sort of hidebound, I think. I am accurate in saying that you drew a great example from how hard she worked, how, how well she provided for you as a family on her own and, and that was already in your blood or you saw it and you copied it. What, what echoes do you remember? I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, I've just asked you nature nurture. I've only realised yeah. that I've asked you to solve nature nurture before you go. <laughs> I've got five minutes. I'm <laughs> sick. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Yeah, it's a really difficult one. I mean, the only thing I can say about my childhood is I loved it. I loved every second well, of it. Start. You know, a start. I consider myself extremely fortunate to have been brought up in the, in the house that I was. Now, in saying that, my mum was a single parent. She brought up five children on her own. She had no money. We were well aware we had no money throughout my childhood life. We did have really good grandparents who were close by, a huge support. So it was all about family, you know, a big family of three boys, three brothers and, and a sister, growing up in a really small shoebox house. But that's why I say it wasn't, material things that made the childhood so good it was a really good strong family unit and I wouldn't change a thing and I think that is testament to uh, to my mum's work. Love aside, a loving environment, what, what were the things that embodied that happiness? Was there music, was there song, were there jokes, was it, was it a competitive household? It was a, a sport loving house full of adventure. I, I always remember being outside. I don't think my mum wanted to be inside because of the house was so cramped. There was no room with so many kids and no, no space, no garden. So we were outside all the time. We had a dog walking, running, chasing, hiding, you know. Up trees. Up trees, yeah. We, we were mainly a house full of boys. So it was a boy's house and 
boys' experiences and absolutely brilliant, brilliant times, you know. Holidays where we, we didn't go anywhere. We were literally around the corner in a tent, you know, but that was just as good as going to America. Any, any kind of push the boundary moments where caught by a neighbour, Nick, <clears throat> he said, drawing from his own textbook, caught by a neighbour in the... In his garden, making apples from his tree, which now seems very Enid Blyton, but at the time I thought I was going to jail. <laughs> yeah, no, there was no um, thieving of apples or anything like that. The, the only stories I have to tell are ones where we would literally smash our neighbours' houses to bits with a football. And I mean to bits. I mean, how they suffered living next to us. Kicking I don't a big full side ball around yeah. indoors. So, yeah, well, not, not indoors, outside. So when we moved house, we had actually a detached house, which was like luxury to us. So oh, yeah. the neighbours had a shed. We literally, a glass, sorry, a glass greenhouse. And uh, we literally put a ball through that greenhouse every day. And it was one of them, as soon as the, you hear the glass shatter, we run in, pretend it hasn't happened. <laughs> My mum would tell us, i say, what's happened? Why have you stopped? You go, oh, no, we've just had enough. <laughs> I'm tired of this football thing then, now. Then we'd get a knock at the door. Be like, <laughs> she'd be like, who is it? Who did it this time? <laughs> We'd all be hiding. Yeah. Uh, literally get you my mum. You can't see me. She'd sort it out, and then we'd go out and play again and do the same thing. <laughs> it was um, must have been horrible living next door to us, but uh, great days. It, when when um, when we sat down with Peter Beardsley, he said, "If there was a fire, he said the first thing I'd know where it was, and I'd go looking for is is my football. Yeah. It's Peter Beardsley, age fifty-three. <laughs> Who bought you your first football?" Oof. What was it? Or All I remember, my, my first football being one of those plastic ones, which had all the names of the uh, uh, Division One yeah. teams in it. I don't know if you remember. Yeah. Black and white. You yeah, know. yeah, it would have to be black and white. Yeah, you'd, you'd spot them all. And I was an Everton fan as a kid growing up. So when I was in my younger days, look for the Everton. Every time I'd pick up the ball, where's Everton? Yeah. Everton's name. And that, that was what I did. Tony Cotty was big for you, no? Mm. Tell me about Tony Cotty. Well, I don't know whether it's in my nature, but just supporting the underdog. So he got signed for, for big money, yeah. a big reputation, scored a hat-trick on his debut and everyone was like, this next best thing. And from that point, he scored loads of goals but was never really given the credit I think he deserved for his goal-scoring ability. So every fan loves a goal-scorer. I loved him, I loved his movement, I loved the way he scored. And I felt he got, um, yeah, didn't quite get the credit he deserved for the amount of goals that he scored and, and how he scored them. But uh, yeah, I was a passionate Everton fan as a kid. What, do you know why Everton? Yeah, well, I do. I was funny. I was uh, lived near Watford, so I was yeah. brought up in, born in Amersham, raised in Chesham. So, used to go and watch Watford. Now, Watford were playing the '84 Cup final, so I was turned it on being a Watford fan. Yeah, and then watched the game, and there was just something. I was like, oh, I've got to support the blue team. What? I, the, the, I mean, the, the kit. The kit was the very kit, good, the name, wasn't it? You know, the name. Just, Everton. Yeah, I don't know. Just the name, the kit, and that was wow. it. I was hooked. That inspired my my following of them, and then I, I followed them. Ever since when I moved to Bournemouth, um, when I was about 10, I think it was. Of course, Bournemouth being my local team, I went to watch them regularly. So mm. I always sort of Watford, Everton, Bournemouth were sort of the teams. When did you get to Goodison? Well, I didn't get to Goodison until I was late, very late. I mean, I can't remember the age when I went there. Because there's a fair I, cost involved. I mean, a real yeah. cost involved with getting from here up yeah. to Liverpool for a game and getting a ticket and well, getting back. We basically couldn't. Yeah. You know, so that, that didn't happen. That was my dream to go to Goodison as a kid. Never got there um, until later in life. But what we would do is follow them when they went to Watford, uh -huh. when they went to the London clubs, when they used to go to Southampton. That was my way of following Portsmouth, etc. Away end? Yeah. Yeah, away end, yeah. Singing? No, I've never been much of a singer. Even when I go to musical concerts, no, I'll sit and watch, but I don't get vocally involved. 
don't know why, but that's just my personality. There may be a fantastic voice waiting. Uh, <laughs> I the... can assure you there's not. <laughs> I have done karaoke. I can I... assure you that there's no voice there. And we're moving into overdrive now. <laughs> Let's talk karaoke. <laughs> Isn't it utterly fantastic? Doesn't it leave your troubles behind? And he said, imposing his views to an exceptional human being who's a successful Premier League manager. You're only ever singing for yourself, not the audience. I can assure you that me and karaoke probably have more in common than you think. I, I do actually quite like a... I don't, oh, geez, I don't know if I should say this. I do actually like to, to sing. I do actually I'm like obsessed. to sing. I find it... He's laughing because wherever we go in the world, I've had them <laughs> after gigs that we set on with three or four hundred people coming to us and we've tramped round European cities for two or three hours <laughs> to find an open karaoke bar. I almost stormed out of Euro 2012 covering Spain for UEFA because in Poland karaoke doesn't exist. Right. I was appalled because the stress relief, how much better you feel about the world if you sing... It's fantastic. It yeah. should be obligatory. It's a nice feeling, and it's something that uh, I would only do in a very uh, small audience, usually just me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I can assure you I'm not good, but, yeah, I think there's something nice about... Well, let, let, me, let me do two things to try and back you up here, because I put you in... I've not deliberately put you in an uncomfortable moment there, but Chrissy Wardle, didn't he? Chrissy, Chris told us that. I mean, he's a guy who said, I'm shy. I don't particularly like going out in the town, but he said... I do like a bit of karaoke. And he, he said that his, his three staples were the jam, a strange town, Billy Idol, Rebel Yell, and, and to be fair, Chris, I forget the other one. And as an Everton fan, I'll share with you that I sung with, I don't know if Adrian Heath was yeah. before. So Inchi and I sung after the, after the European final at Hamden that Espanyol played. And if there's anybody in Everton's history who can sing better than Adrian, I'll be surprised because he is Frank Snatcher reincarnated. Well... When you're singing in your one-man karaoke booth, what would be the choices of songs? Yeah, I'm not doing my credibility any good here. <laughs> it's not about credibility, this it's about is, honesty. This is going to kill me. Um, <laughs> now, I will sing Aha, uh, uh-huh, which, if you've heard Morton Harkett sing oh. and you, you've heard his range, that is not the type of thing, if you can't sing, that you want to follow, but I, I do my very best. Very different. In fact, you can't. I can't get near his range. I can't even no. begin to try. But it's it's fun having a go. Now He's Norwegian. They, do, do Norwegians yodel, or is that the Swiss? Well, I don't know. He can do most things with his voice. He's got an incredible, as I say, incredible range. But um, no, you know, I enjoy that. We've veered off track a little bit, but you've got me very excited. My pulse is going. Unbelievable. <laughs> you don't think it's true, but it is. In fact, to, to quote the great Duffer again, Duffer gave me the best thing about the big interview with Damien Duff was he gave me the best karaoke bar I've ever been to in my life in Dublin. We went there later that night and I still owe him and his missus for that one. Was there a time, in a, in a more serious way now, because is where I was going originally, was there a time when, when given the, the, the way that, the work ethic that your mother had to do to, to give you a, a successful, happy, loving childhood for all of you, you're in a cruel sport and injury hits you. And I'm presuming at that stage, football hadn't made you a multi-millionaire. Was there a stage at which she was like, right, now you must go and do something else? No, the, the beauty of my mum was that when I decided, because I was, I was released by Bournemouth at 16, so I was without football in my life, you know, at, at that stage as a 16-year-old. So I, was, I decided, did well in my GCSEs, decided to go and take my A-levels. So I'm doing my A-levels, Bournemouth come knocking again and say, right, well, we've had a couple of injuries, would you come back? I went back, then then said, right, we'd now like to offer you a, a YTS you know, I'd sort of stuck with it, even though they'd let me go. And I said to her, well, you know, what do you think? And she said, well, do what you want to do. I, I would, you know, if I was you, I'd go for it. 
Good. You can always go back and, and look at the academic side another time. Follow your dreams. And that was the beauty of her, her mindset. She said, she said, follow your dreams. So when my career ended, there was no panic from her perspective. I think she always trusted that I would be okay. And she said, right, okay, just figure out what you want to do next. She was very relaxed for some bizarre reason because I wasn't. <laughs> no, I'd imagine not. I mean, it's a, I think people underestimate the agony of having not only what you do taken away, but when you do something that makes you feel physically supreme, you, you know, your adrenaline is going, you're fit, you can turn your destiny to some extent yourself because if the ball's yours, you can win a game or win points or win a league. Right? When that gets taken away, it's, it can be a real blow to people's self-worth. Yeah, there was a time when I felt, well, the two years I was out injured, I felt really low. I felt like I had lost my identity. Yeah, that's you know, what when, I meant to say. When you do exist and this is what you do and you can't do it anymore and the longer I was out, the more removed I felt from being a footballer. I lost sort of what I was and confidence levels of, you know, used to walk into training and feel great and not think anything of it. When you get injured, you sort of want to hide a little bit because you feel, or I felt very guilty for not being able to deliver what I'd hoped to deliver at Portsmouth. They'd just signed me and had got injured and paid a lot of money for mm. me. And I, th that, those feelings of guilt, which I probably I don't think exist so much now for players, I don't know. I understand, um, yeah. I carried that burden of their fee with me and um, that meant that the two years I had with them were very unhappy for me personally, but nothing against the club who were great with me. Yeah, who, who comes out well from that? Who, who looked after you, who thought of you, who supported you, propped you up mentally and said, you're going to get there, it'll be fine? Because a lot of people will not have meant to be cruel, but will have just left you alone. I think that's, again, part of football, really. When you're injured, you know, no disrespect to Harry. Harry had so much to do. He was taking the team to promotion into the Premier League. He didn't have time to, you know, spend too much with me. I think Harry was great, by the way, in helping me get the, the right specialists and the right care. But I think it's always your family that you fall back on. It's always those people that are closest to you that you can rely on. Richard Hughes is a very good teammate of mine um, at Portsmouth who'd moved with me from Bournemouth to Portsmouth. He was excellent for me, you know, as a, as a friend, as someone who I was with every day to try and help me stay strong. We Scots are like that. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not Scott who made it to Syria, which yeah. is an unusual thing. And Scott came to one of our, our book gigs in, in London. It was a pleasure to see him. A pleasure to see him with you now. And at that stage, did, did you, was there a sense of bitterness about the injury or did you accept it was a normal consequence of playing impact sport or? No bitterness at all, no. I mean, it was... For me, it was self-induced. That's how I look at it. It was me, again, not giving myself a rest, pushing myself all the time to improve. So again, my, my biggest strength had sort of ended my career, I believe, because I'd, I'd pushed myself too hard. Literally, you'd worked to the point where you hadn't understood that something was about to give way. I wouldn't say necessarily someone was going to give way, but I'd pushed myself to the point where I hadn't probably rested enough and I was maybe a little bit fatigued and wanting success too much where my body just maybe at times needed to calm down and, and rest and recuperate. But I have no regrets over that because if I hadn't have had that attitude initially, then I yeah. certainly wouldn't have made, I wouldn't have had any of these experiences. That was certainly something that I felt, probably being a little bit too analytical there, but that, that's, yeah, I felt it was self-induced. I think some of the way you've explained yourself will help people understand who've seen you saying that you haven't enjoyed this season, which, you know, is the furthest possible thing from the truth that if you only look through Sky Sports News or if you read the press, nobody would initially understand that, I think, because it's a life goal. You've been very, very successful. People appreciate and understand you a little bit more. You've made your players better, which is clearly one of the goals of a, of a leader. There should be satisfaction there, but you have often said that it's not a particularly enjoyable process. So therefore help me by going back and cherry-picking what 
has been enjoyable about this process. <laughs> In management, you mean? Yeah. I think when you look back and you think, well, where was the club when, well, I'm talking Bournemouth here. Yeah. Where was the club when, you know, you first touched it in management and where is the club now? I, even I have to look back and go, wow, you know, if, if someone had told me that would have been the chain of events, that is what we would have achieved, then that must be a good thing. You know, that must have mean you've, you've achieved what you wanted to achieve. You've had success. Hopefully you've done the right things and you've treated people well on the way. The reality is when you're working day to day, you, you lose sight of all that and the work and the next challenge is just around the corner and that's what I've always been like. So the minute I've achieved one thing, or the team's achieved one thing, it's right, well, now what's next? What have we got to do now? You know, we've got to work harder to make sure that there's more successes to come in the future and that's why it's a never-ending cycle and that's where the, when you say, did you enjoy it? Well, you're, I'm still in it. I'm still working. So there's no, no real enjoyment until the end. This isn't meant to sound cheeky, and I'm aware of it as I ask it, but is there something to extrapolate with what you've just explained about how hard you pushed yourself in the lead up to the injury at Portsmouth and, and what happened and, and what can happen by squeezing every last drop out of yourself as a human being, as a manager? Very much so. Something I think about a lot. I think it's a very good question. And I've, I think, again, I've said in many other interviews that the challenge for me is to make sure I get the balance right between work, family, that's always going to be a delicate balance, and I think that's the challenge for every manager who works works hard to achieve. Okay, but what are the pillars of staying well? <laughs> um, you know, simple things, normal things. I mean, as I said earlier, the biggest challenge in this job is the mental fatigue mm -hmm. that you get. The mental fatigue then creates stress and all the other things. So you need to be, first and foremost, you need to look after your health. So you need to eat well, you need to exercise, you need to sleep well. They're absolute must. That's easier said than done. And then you must, and this has got bigger for me as I've got older, having kids must spend some quality time with them. Mm -hmm. Must see the kids grow up, must enjoy being enjoy. married. You know, and that way you can hopefully enjoy your career even more because you're sharing it with other people. John Wooden said in, in one of the lectures I loved, he said, when young aspiring coaches came to me, he said to them, don't lay on evening night sessions because if they don't go well, your players will go home. If they're just young guys, newly married, they'll go home angry. You say, going home angry isn't great for newlyweds. Doesn't matter later in life. <laughs> they got a laugh from the audience too. And it's funny how calibrating things can make a huge difference to that tight balance you've got about, because it's not just about looking after yourself, it's about the fact that your quality of decision-making and planning will revolve around how well you are. Absolutely right. So this job, is all about your decision making. Um, there's many other aspects to it, but if you if you if you don't make good decisions every day, you're not going to be successful. So I'm faced with loads of little things that you've got to try and get right all the time. Yes or no to this. Yes or no to this. What should we do here? And to think clearly, you have to be in good health. You have to be refreshed. You have to be able to to think very clearly. And that's you're not going to make those good decisions if you're tired, if you're fatigued, if you're run down. And if everything's getting too much for you, so that's where the balance sometimes it is. And this is me saying this, which is incredibly rare. Sometimes a step away is just as good as throwing mm -hmm. yourself into it all the time. And that's what I've got to try and focus on, I think. I remember one of the big things when Alex Ferguson collaborated with Gianluca Vialli and Gabriel McCotty in their, their book comparing English and Italian football. He thinks one of the key elements of his success, either personal or at the club or winning trophies, was that he felt that around him are competitive managers not only procrastinated, but were scared of decisions. Literally were, would put them off or didn't want the consequences where he went, I make a decision for the right reasons, and if it's wrong, I take that and I move on. 
but there is a big human thing about if something's a hard decision to make, avoid it. Find a reason to go in another direction for a week or a month or an hour. Where are you on that scale? I find I, I like to have clarity in my mind. So if there's something I'm weighing up, I will try and force a solution or force an answer. What, one thing I'm, I'm comfortable with is, oh, what shall I do? Well, let, me, let me sleep on it or let me, let me go away and think about that for a period of time. Obviously, it depends what the decision is. Yeah. In my mind, I'm pretty black or white. I, I will go, that's the answer. So I, I'd like to think my decision-making is quite good. I'm quite quick to, to reach answers. And once I've made my decision, there's no turning back. So sometimes I like to, um, to seek a, a, a solution. So I will hit something straight on to say, I want to accelerate this. Let me have a meeting with whoever it is or whatever mm-hmm. the problem is and, and mm-hmm. bring a solution a step closer rather than waiting. What, um, where would the limits of your ambition be, personal? Yeah, I don't really have any grand plan. I really don't. And this isn't a game. You know, this is just me. I'm doing my best today. I don't have a vision to say, right, that's what I want to do. I want to, I want to achieve this. Never have done from the minute I set foot into, on this journey in management. I will take the future as it comes. That's sort of how I've, how I've managed so far. Do you, do you have even time to imagine what it might be coaching the Champions League? Is the Champions League a competition and an experience that, that, that calls to you without a grand plan? Setting that aside, I, I've never thought about the Champions League. Um, the only time I've thought about it is in response, honestly, in response to this question. People may think, well, you're managing in the Premier League, you should be thinking about things like that. But the reality is, I'm at, I'm at Bournemouth, and we had a very clear aim this season, very clear aim the season before. And it's important that we sort of hit those objectives. I recognise who I'm managing, so I think at this moment in time, the short-term challenges are very clear. What about the, can you explain a little bit about what you drew from, what you learned from what the experience was like when Real Madrid came to town? Yeah, a great day, absolutely brilliant day for the football club. I just remember an incredibly tough game. (laughs) (laughs) I think um, they they put a side out. Yeah, they put a side out, which is great for us. Yeah. Which is one of the, the highlights from the day. Usually you can play these teams and think, well, we've played their second team there and they've still beaten us, but we played Ronaldo scored, Modric played, Benzema and Higuain switched. Carvajal was emerging then, but has become a Champions League winner. Right across the team, there were first-rate players. Kadira was still there and played and has now gone to Juventus and has won the World Cup. I'm thinking also because you seem to me to study and learn and and take away. Watching a club like that operating, what was it like? And I I guess, was it the first time you'd met Carlo and, and, and... Yeah. And Paul? First time I'd met Carlo and Paul and they gave me their time, which was brilliant before the game. I had a good chat with them at yeah. the hotel. You're absolutely right. We analysed the game from both teams' perspective, not just ours, which I would normally do. Yeah. We analysed them as well. And we, we came away from that game with three or four things that we were like, yeah, OK, can we implement that into our team? And I think that's the beauty of the journey that we've gone on where we, as we've gone through the leagues, as we've gone through and played better teams. We've taken bits from our opposition and we're doing that this year, which has been great. You mean in your post-match analysis, you might look at um, an Arsenal set play or...? Um... Not so much the set plays, more the, the general plays, how they play out from the back or how they press, um, how they would play in midfield, how would they create an overload. These things are fascinating to me and every team does it differently, so and we'd take things like that from it. I'd never ask for privileged information, but there's a new test coming, I imagine, in that you'll want to improve, simply because of the nature of what the Premier League earns the club, there'll be a different kind of budget every year that you manage to stay in the Premier League or go further up than you are right now. And that whole process of learning who to buy, when to buy, 
how to risk manage, how to look at the personalities. And I imagine that while that's going to drain more, still more of your time and your resources, I imagine that's a test that you'll embrace, even if you've got help around or above you. Do you have a director of football? Richard sort of takes the role of technical director. So he'll be our head of our recruitment um, and deals a lot with relationships with clubs from other countries, etc. So, yeah, I mean, your question is, again, a good one. I mean, we are now focusing on our recruitment for next season, regardless of what division we're in. And I think the higher you go up the football world, the harder it comes Mm -hmm. to recruit the right players. The window that you're recruiting from is smaller. Pool of players is smaller, so it's, it gets more difficult. And the most important thing is what you said there about the characters of players and making sure it's a right fit for us. That takes research, manpower, and it's difficult to get right. So these are all challenges that we face and hopefully we can adapt. It's a different kind of challenge because it, I think it's the people and the information that will by and large be less reliable than looking at a game, analysing it, talking it through, reapplying it, and you go, well... A plus B might not always take you to C, but it won't take you much further than D, whereas that's not the case in the transfer market. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's difficult. And I think any mistake you make now at this level is a hugely expensive one. And when you're at this club, in comparison to other clubs, uh, limited resources, that's where we've got to be very careful. I mean, in days gone by, not, not so long ago, I mean, a year ago, recruiting foreign players would have been a no. We, we just focused on the domestic market. And now suddenly, mm-hmm. a Premier League club... If we only focused in England or in Britain, you know, we're narrowing our search to a degree where it's impossible. So a lot's changed and that's a constant process we're having to adapt to. Your man that likes to study, maybe we close in a, I don't know if it's mutual admiration or not, but Pep Guardiola has influenced my working career a great deal by having to try to understand him, keep up with him, chronicle him, interview him, watch his work, talk to players who've worked under him. Your appetite for for testing yourself against him, never mind learning. Beating his team must be high. Yeah, meeting him would be <laughs> would be great. Uh, talking to him would be great. And, and going against him on a coaching level would be brilliant. I mean, he's one of many that I respect so much and I admire. What, what a man for what he's done for football, not just for the respective clubs he's been at. I would love one day to watch him work. I think that would be a dream. When you watch his training sessions on the internet or when you read about him as you've done with Pep Confidential, what, what stands out? I think a series of things. I don't think there's one thing that stands out. I mean, his passion, when, I, when I've seen him coach and when I've seen him talking to his players, how um, passionate he gets about his subject. I think his knowledge is difficult because I'm speaking without meeting him. Or having no, 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 I'm knowledge. talking but about impressions. Yeah, his knowledge, I, I would imagine, would be second to none. I imagine he's brimming with ideas and, and new things he wants to do and implement into the game. And I think that's what's so good for the Premier League, the fact that he's coming and we've got Jurgen Klopp and the quality of managers in the Premier League as such that I think it's going to be a great league next year. In terms of refreshing, new information, clubs more vibrant, automatically it makes it more difficult for you, presumably, because you're going against guys who have a little more experience in the cases you mentioned, the bigger budget. That isn't necessarily an incentive to you to work harder because you couldn't, but it's just more of a test to see where you and your club and your squad are at. Yeah, it's more a test of me, the players, the club. I love the fact there's new ideas and the best coming to the Premier League. I think that's what you want. If you can achieve success in the Premier League, I think it's one of the most difficult leagues in the world, then it stands you in good stead. You're becoming better as a coach, better as a manager, and I think that stimulates me. So, you know, I'd love to see Mourinho, etc., and others join the Premier League and make it even harder. The way to close is that in some basketball podcast in the future, there'll be somebody quoting Eddie Howe. (laughs) 
And up in your office, we've got Make Each Day Your Masterpiece, which is another John Wooden. What well, if you were to lecture or to write a book? What would your phrases, what would your advice be? Well, um, difficult because I don't think I've mastered a quote that is mine, which is one of my next challenges. <laughs> by the sounds of it, because I can't think of anything. There's no, no, there's no. I, I am inspired by by one, and it was. It's not mine. Uh, the biggest room in the world is the room for improvement. I don't know who made it. I don't know who said it. I think various people might have said variations on the same thing. But I heard that only when I became a, a manager, and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. It's that constant need, that constant desire to get better at whatever you're doing. Uh, that fuels me. Well, I'm a very loyal man, so just as I argued passionately that Jackie Stewart invented the harder, as far as I'm concerned, the biggest room is the room for improvement, is now officially Eddie Howe's phrase. <laughs> this has Thank been you. as much fun as I thought it would be. Likewise. Continued success to you. Thank you very much. There you have the evidence of why Bournemouth are such a successful, robust, attractive-to-watch team. It's got a massive amount to do with Eddie Howe. What a fella. Anybody who listens to the big interview regularly or who reads what I write will know that Eddie Pep already knows all about you, why you're successful, what Bournemouth play like, and what he finds attractive about it. When you meet, you'll get on. There are similarities. The Big Interview is produced by Backpage and me, Graham Hunter, and edited by Alex Adi at Audioboom. We couldn't have pulled this one off without the good folk at Bournemouth, including Max Fitzgerald. What a character Max is. I hope he stays for a long, long time with the club he loves, Bournemouth, but he's exceptional at his job. And one day, just as for Eddie, I think, other big clubs will come calling. Steve Lovell, Dandy, thank you. Keep up to date with everything we're doing at grahamhunter.tv where there's a wee box for your email address. Sign up there, then you'll get our newsletter which includes the chance to put your questions to our guests. We're on Facebook, search for The Big Interview and we're at GH Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Keep in touch wherever you download it. If you've enjoyed it, leave an opinion on iTunes. Let us know what you think about it. Keep involved with us. And thanks for being there. Eddie Howe is exceptional, but so are you. The fun you get out of this, the interest it causes you, the feedback you give us, these are the elements that make us keep wanting to record the big interview. You're a pleasure to know. See ya.